Our scripture reading this morning is found in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with them, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, Do you have a favorite book? Do you have a, a book that you've maybe read over and over again, or your like desert island book? Uh, what would you choose to be uh, the book that you read uh, for the rest of your life? What is it? The Bible. You can't. You no extra credit for saying the Bible this morning. Get out of here. Um, maybe you have a uh, a favorite like genre of literature. Some of you are like crime fiction people. Some of you are fantasy people. Uh, nonfiction history. Um, uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever attempted to read a book that's meant to be amazing, like meant to be one of the greatest pieces of literature, but you failed to get through it because it's been difficult? Like, does anyone just love Moby Dick? You've read Moby Dick over and over again. Uh, or uh, James Joyce's uh, Ulysses. Have you ever tried to read Ulysses? Hard work. Uh, War and Peace. Something like that. Have you ever attempted to read something that's meant to be incredible, but you've You've not made it through because it's been difficult, or you're maybe not used to that kind of literature. Um, does that make that a bad book? No. Obviously, I mean, usually those are regarded as the, the best books, right? Um, just because a book is difficult doesn't mean it's bad. It just means we need to learn how to read it in order to fully appreciate it, in order to fully uh, take in all that it's trying to tell us. Um, and there's good, good sections of the Bible that are that way, right? Have you ever done like Bible in a year? You get to Leviticus, and you're like, whoo. Here's, here's the, you got to put in the work here. There's these writings that we attempt to read and we can get stuck in because we're not used to it or it's maybe a little bit dif- difficult. This morning, we're starting uh, a series in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I've, I'm hyphenating those two words into one because although you're used to Ezra and Nehemiah being these two uh, separate books in your Old Testament, they're originally one uh, one scroll, one author, uh, they're meant to be read in, as one complete story. So if you, if you split them up, you're actually reading it in the wrong way. So get used to hearing Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, hands up if Ezra or Nehemiah is your favorite book in the Old Testament. Like it's when you get to hear, you're like, all right, here we go. Um, this is where you get excited. Um, I think very few of us would, would choose these two books as our go-to books in the Old Testament um, here's where we uh, just kind of, our souls flourish um, for a couple different reasons. Firstly, because you might not be familiar with these books, um, and also because they can be a little bit difficult. 
Um, they're not quite like the Psalms, are they? They're not quite like Genesis or Exodus or uh, Daniel or Jonah. Um, in fact, some of you might be thinking at this point, what are they about? <laughs> Who's Ezra and Nehemiah? Are these prophets? W- what are they doing here? I know there's maybe something about a wall being built. Maybe you heard a, a, a sermon on Nehemiah if your church has done like a building project or something like that. So um, the big question then is why? Why study Ezra and Nehemiah? Why does it matter? Why should you care about Ezra and Nehemiah? Um, I'm not going to tell you why. I'm going to let someone else tell you, what, tell you why and why these books matter. So if you have your Bibles there, turn over to Luke chapter 24. You, you won't have to search for that one, right? I heard the, like the flickerings while like, David's nearly done and people are like, still, where's Ezra and Nehemiah? In Luke 24... To talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, you have to talk about Jesus, okay? Um, and in Luke 24, Jesus tells his disciples why these books matter. Um, this is the, the last chapter of, of the Gospel of Luke, and Luke gives us this one final scene with Jesus and his disciples. This is after he has risen from the dead, but before he has ascended to heaven. Um, verse 36. Actually, just before that, there's that famous scene where two of his disciples are walking to Emmaus, Remember that, where they're walking, uh, Jesus appears, but he kind of hides his identity, and these guys are telling Jesus that they don't know as Jesus, uh, how sad they are, and how disappointed, and how confused they are, um, and they said, they're kind of surprised that he didn't know what was going on, they're like, have you not heard of this, this Jesus, um, this Jesus that we thought was the Messiah, we thought that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but he has been killed. He's been crucified. Uh, we're a little bit confused because there's reports that he's maybe alive because his tomb was empty and open. Uh, we don't really know what to think. And then verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter in his glory? And then verse 27, he says, Luke says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as they're walking, he, this is like the world's greatest Bible study, and he teaches them how all the scriptures were actually concerned with him. And what were all the scriptures for Jesus? His, his Bible was the, was the Hebrew Bible, was our Old Testament, right? He says, all of this is concerned with me. And then in verse 36, Luke's, Luke gives us a final scene. Uh, Jesus appears to his disciples. They're scared. They think he's a ghost. He's not a ghost. Give me some fish. Remember that scene? And then in verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So if you read the Gospels, you know Jesus, he's a Bible guy. He, he, he quotes the Bible a lot. He's always talking about the Bible. He's always teaching from the Bible. And he reminds them here, just before he goes to heaven, that everything uh, had to be fulfilled that was written about him in the Old Testament. And he says the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Uh, but that's just not Jesus picking these kind of three sections that he likes the best. He's actually talking about the whole of the Bible. Um, because what he actually does is, it's quite common in Hebrew literature and rabbinical uh, writings, and Jesus was a rabbi. They actually talked about the Bible as having a three-part shape. Um, I think there's a, screen on the, uh, uh, a slide on the screen um, that shows you have the, the Torah of Moses, you have the prophets, and then you have the Psalms or the writings. Um, and and um, maybe, yes, this one. So you have the, uh, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, and the Psalms. And you see at the very bottom of that, Ezra and Nehemiah, are part of that third section, these, these kind of three narratives that kind of close out the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible and the kind of Jewish 
order. And so Jesus says, all of this is fulfilled in me. And like it all somehow fits in a storyline that, that's pointing towards what Jesus has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He's saying all these books fit together and they're telling an overall story and they're pointing forward and they're all pointing forward to the Messiah in different ways. So the way the Psalms point to Jesus is different than the way Genesis points to, points to Jesus. It's the way different than the way Ezra and Nehemiah do. Um, a helpful analogy I heard uh, for thinking about the way all of these various writings point to Jesus is to think of like the Chronicles of Narnia. Like you've all read the Chronicles of Narnia, maybe, it's close to home. Um, if you don't know, it's a, it's a series of seven books, seven separate stories. Um, and there's a variety of characters. There's the four Pevensey children that appear in a couple of the books. Um, there's uh, books that have uh, some characters from Earth that go into the Narnian world. There's some that are just the Narnian world. They're all different, but they're all telling one grand story about one main character, and the main character is who? Aslan. Aslan's the main character of the book. The, he's the central character that all the stories are really about. So um, he doesn't appear on every chapter. He doesn't appear on every page. There's sections where his name doesn't appear at all. Uh, but without a doubt, all of the chapters, all of the characters... The whole thing unites to tell a story about Aslan. You get what I'm saying? It's similar to how we think about the Old Testament. Jesus says, all of this was written to be fulfilled in me. Um, They all do that, but in different ways. They're all pointing to him. Um, Various literature, there's history, there's poetry, there's letters, there's songs, there's narrative, but they all fit into the story of being fulfilled in Jesus. So the question really is, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to learn about Jesus? Do you want to understand him better? If the answer is yes, then we'll read Ezra and Nehemiah, because that's exactly what, what it's doing for us. What are we trying to be? We're trying to be a gospel-shaped community of people. That means everything that we do is shaped by Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and so is Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, it's just the key is let's figure it out, and let's, let's dig in and see what that is telling us about him. So let me pray one more, one more time, and we'll begin our study. Um, God, we just thank you for, for loving us. Uh, we thank you for your word you've given us so that we can know you, um, so we can see Jesus uh, more clearly and get to know him even better and to see ourselves in relation to him. Um, so would you do that for us this morning? Um, Holy Spirit, would you teach us? We pray that in your name. Amen. Right. Um, let me prepare you first by saying the way that we'll make our way through these little books is going to be different than the way we normally preach, like through the Gospel of uh, the Gospel of Luke is this story, this narrative, right? Um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. One of the reasons why they're kind of difficult is it's not just one kind of genre. It's lots in it. There's memoirs and there's reports and there's letters and there's story. Um, it's a mix of all of that. So we'll have to approach it slightly differently. And um, I also want to say, bear with me today, especially if you're new. Um, because today might feel a little bit less like a sermon that you're used to, and maybe a little bit more like you're sitting in a seminary class, okay? Like it's a little bit more uh, history, because today is just going to be an introduction to Ezra and Nehemiah. We're not going to get too deep into the text today, um, but it's important that we do this to set the context, uh, to, to, to see where we're at in history, um, who, are the, who are the characters, what's the setting, okay? Um, It'll be worth doing that in order for the rest of the series to make sense. Uh, because I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of people might be sitting here and you have no idea what Ezra and Nehemiah are about or you can't remember. 
Um, and some of this is confusing because the way the Old Testament is arranged in our Bibles. So you're looking down at your Bibles and you see Ezra and Nehemiah like in the middle of the Old Testament. Um, but that's not where we're at in the, the timeline of the, new, of the Old Testament, okay? This is actually the, ve- the very last scenes of the Old Testament. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah are the, are the final kind of things that are happening. And so it's important to know where we're at in Israel's history, what they are experiencing in real time if we want to really understand the story, okay? So I'm going to take a bit of time and kind of give you an overview of uh, the history of the Jewish people uh, coming up to Ezra and Nehemiah. My goal is not for you just to understand the timeline of it all, but I want you to, to, to pay attention and to pick out and see a few uh, themes through their history. Um, the first theme that I want you to see is the theme of covenant, um, because covenant is actually what makes Israel, Israel, God's people, is his covenant with them, uh, because God, uh, the way God relates to people, the way he enters into relationship with people on earth is by covenant. Um, and all through the, the scriptures, you see him make covenant. Uh, some of his covenants are unconditional, um, so there's, there's nothing on our part that we have to really do. He's, these are just promises that he is going to uphold. Um, you think of his, his covenant that he made to Eve, where he unconditionally says, I'm one of your offspring, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, raise up, and he's going to crush the head of Satan. Okay, there's, he's just promising to do that. Or his covenant to Noah in Genesis 9, his unconditional promise not to destroy the earth in that way again. Those are unconditional covenants, these promises that God makes. There's other more conditional covenants so this is like we enter into this with God, and there's, there's like ethical obligations that we uphold uh, for the covenant to work. Uh, Exodus 19, his covenant with Israel, where he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's a keeping of the covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, so covenant is the way God establishes relationship with people on earth. It's so important to understand that. And the second theme I want you to, to pick out through their story is, is this theme of captivity. Um, and so what you'll see is when the people are not faithful to God's covenant, then there is discipline. Because God's a good parent and he disciplines his disobedient children. And, and often when they disobey and they're unfaithful to the covenant, they're taken into captivity. Um, so keep your eyes out for those two themes throughout their history, while at the same time kind of familiarizing yourself where we are with Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? We're going to back up to Abram, because um, Abram is where God begins this, this covenant with his people, um, who will become Israel. Um, um, Abram is the start of this formation of this family, this nation, this covenant people. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of the land of Ur, um, which is a Babylonian city. So God rescues Abram out of uh, polytheism, out of paganism, and he's, he's inviting, he's bringing Abram into this relationship with him. And God enters into this covenant with Abraham, and he says, I'm a faithful God, and I want to make you into a great nation. I want to bless your family and your descendants that's the beginning. And from the beginning, that family will grow into the nation of Israel. And it's important to see from the very beginning what this, this, this family is built upon. What this nation is built upon is on the faithfulness of God, not the faithfulness 
of man, but the faithfulness of God. It's always been built on that. God knows that these people are going to fail him because he's already planned for Jesus to come into the world to redeem his people, okay? So have that in your minds as you begin to think of God's chosen people, that even here from the beginning, it's all about the faithfulness of God. It's a major theme of the Bible. It's a major theme of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, his faithfulness to his people, despite their rebellion, uh, despite even when he disciplines them, he is faithful. You fast forward through Genesis and, and Exodus, and we know that first time period is the patriarchs. So you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who's Israel, and, and Joseph. Those are the, the patriarchs that begins the growth of Israel. And we know that Joseph then, there's this transition into the, this next uh, phase, this next era. Uh, remember, Joseph is sold by his brothers into Egypt, and, and he is taken to Egypt, and God blesses him. God is continuing to be faithful to him. And immediately what you see is Joseph is this type of Christ, um, where he provides salvation for the people of Egypt. Um, this is a pagan people being saved by a holy God through the sending of his servant Joseph. Okay, so if you're not seeing these foreshadows of Christ, we're going to miss a lot. Um, and through Joseph bringing his family to Egypt, um, the people of Israel explode and they really begin to grow um, so much so that by the time Moses comes onto the scene, Pharaoh is, is pretty terrified of the size of this people. Uh, because of their growth, uh, Pharaoh fears their size and their might, and then he begins to oppress them, and he enslaves them. And this is the time period known as the Exodus. And you know the period God uses Moses to bring his people out of captivity in Egypt, 10 plagues through the Red Sea, the wilderness, and then Joshua, who's kind of Moses' lieutenant, he eventually brings the people into the promised land, um, enters into this next era known as the judges, where these judges rule over the tribe of Israel. And then we, that brings us to the next era of their history, commonly known as the monarchy. Um, and this is a time in Israel's uh, period where they're longing to be like the nations. They long to have kings and they declared to God, we want to be like the other earthly nations. Uh, we want kings to lead us. And the problem was that they, this was an act of rebellion. And because God was their king, they, they had a leader, they had a king, Yahweh. So this was just another example of Israel's turning from trusting in God's faithfulness and instead wanting to trust in the power of man. And, and God gives them what they want. And they, he gives them Saul as the first king. He turns out to be a pretty crappy king. Uh, but God also blesses them he, 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 with, with good kings. And in this monarchy of King David, you have King Solomon. And through these good kings, Israel begins to flourish. And they, get to, they begin to experience great blessing. And then we have what's known as the divided kingdom. So not long after Solomon dies, uh, Israel, the people experience this splendor. Um, and there's a civil war in the nation. And they eventually divide into two separate kingdoms. Um, you have the northern kingdom of Israel and you have the southern kingdom of Judah. And for the rest of the Old Testament, you have Israel and you have Judah. You have this fractured timeline of what's going on in Israel's kingdom and their history. And you have this other separate fractured timeline of what's going on in Judah's history. Separate kings, separate regions where they rule. And eventually what happens to both of these separate kingdoms is tragedy. Um, and so the story of Israel, 
I want you to see how it's representative of humanity. They're constantly rejecting God, they're constantly giving in to sin and idolatry, and they're showing us something about humanity, that we are in desperate need of something greater than ourselves. We are in need of a faithful God who saves even his enemies. Because what you've seen is God is contingently faithful to Israel in his covenant, in his promises, even though they are continually rebellious against him. And their rebellion led, their unfaithfulness to God's covenant led to both of these divided kingdoms being conquered. Israel, the northern kingdom, was wiped off the map historically by the Assyrians. Um, The prophets actually predicted this, that Assyria would come and capture the people of Israel and disperse them across the lands. And that was Assyria's mode of war. They would not only capture you, but they would disperse you so that you would be slaves over here and slaves over here. You'd work for their kingdom, but also you wouldn't be able to gather together and wage war against Assyria. So Israel is obliterated by Assyria. Um, The southern kingdom, Judah, holds on a little bit longer, but not much longer, and they eventually fall to the same fate. And God tells them why this happened. He said, you've turned against me. You've rebelled against me. And so I'm going to send these warring nations to be the consequence of your rebellion. And so the southern tribe of Judah ends up falling to the Babylonians. Um, And in 586 BC, um, so we're we're getting there, aren't we? 586 BC, um, the Jews were taken into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard of him. Um, and the Babylonians, they march into Jerusalem. This is the, 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 the capital of Judah. This is the center of their, their nation, the center of their faith. And Jerusalem is sacked. It's destroyed. Uh, the temple is destroyed. They tear down the walls. This great holy city is pummeled. So the same thing happens to Judah. Babylon takes some of the people, not everyone, but, but the, the leaders and what makes them politically viable. They take them and they scatter them as well. They disperse them across the empire. And this is this next era known as the exile because they're exiles, okay? They're, they're, they're no longer a nation. They're now foreigners, strangers in a foreign land. They no longer dwelled in the promised land. They're no longer where they're, they're meant to be. They're, they're scattered abroad. They no longer had the temple, which was their, their biggest problem because no temple meant no temple worship which meant no sacrifices. No sacrifices meant no atonement for their sins. No atonement for their sins meant no relationship with God. So they are utterly identityless. They are are hopeless. Complete despair, complete tragedy. Identityless isn't a really word. No identity. Um, This exile period lasts about 70 years. Um, This is actually the setting of the book of Daniel. This is a book about the people living in exile, living in foreign lands under the oppression of foreign pagan dictators. Do you see the parallels for us today? Christian, do you ever feel like an exile in our world today? Do you, as a child of God, trying to follow his ways, trying to remember your identity in him, do you ever feel like an exile living in a foreign land? Do you ever feel that, that urge to go home? Like you just don't belong here? Keep an eye out for those parallels in Israel's history. 
Um, exile lasts for about 70 years, which brings us right up to the beginning of Ezra, where you have this uh, another transition period um, where you enter into Israel's next phase of their history. Some scholars call this the post-exilic era or the restoration. And, and what happens in this transition period between the Jews being scattered abroad and exiled and then them coming home to be restored is God raises up another empire, the empire of Persia, uh, to um, conquer the Babylonians. So, so when the Persians conquer the Babylonians and they take control, well, the Jewish exiles become their exiles. And so there's this new regime over these exiles. But the Persians, they had a different tactic than the Babylonians. The Babylonians would crush and scatter you. They, they would uh, try to erase your identity completely. You couldn't worship your own God anymore. But the Persians took a different approach. Um, they actually would encourage the exiles to go back home. Um, they were fine with the Jews having a sense of identity and, and even worship. They were okay with you having that, that sense of freedom as long as your ultimate allegiance was to Persia, which transitions us to this post-exilic era or the, the restoration. And I want you to think of it in that way where the Jews slowly begin to go back home. They begin to rebuild and restore their identity, which centers around worship. It centers around the temple and the law. And I know I said we weren't going to get into the passage today, but let's quickly read Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, because this sets the scene where we're at. It begins with a proclamation from Cyrus the king of Persia. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so they've conquered Babylon, they've taken over, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Verse 2, this is the declaration that was read and proclaimed. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever out there, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold and goods and beasts and besides free-willed offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Okay, so did you catch what happens here? Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, makes this grand declaration that the exiles can go home. You're free to, to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple. The captivity is over. The exile is over. The covenant remains. What exciting news. But did you catch what was said in verse 1? He says, the Lord stirred in the spirit of Cyrus. So, so why had their captivity ended? Why were they going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple? Because Cyrus' declaration? Yes. But who's behind Cyrus' declaration? God is. The Lord stirred in Cyrus so that he did this. So there's this theme of the faithfulness of God again. God is continuing to be faithful to his people even while they are in exile. And why are they in exile? 
because they've been rebellious, because they've been unfaithful to God. So because of their unfaithfulness, because of their disobedience, because of the failure to the covenant, but here God is still faithful. Even though they didn't deserve it, even though they rebelled against God, you have the faithfulness of God. Another thing that you'll see here and throughout Ezra and Nehemiah is the providence of God. So keep an eye out for God. He's stirring in these pagan kings' hearts. He's even using them to accomplish his purposes and to bring his children home. It's because of his faithfulness and his providence that they get to return home and they get to rebuild the temple and establish their identity again. Okay, so on the surface, that's the story that Ezra and Nehemiah is telling this return of these exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild and to restore their relationship with God. Um, and Ezra and Nehemiah tells this story by telling three stories uh, within one. Uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they happen about a, over a, a period of about 100 years. Um, and so this return, this restoration takes a little while, which you would imagine. Uh, imagine rebuilding the nation. Imagine rebuilding uh, an entire city. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, takes, it takes some time. And so what we get is these three waves or these three returns over that stretch of period. And, and each of these sections kind of follow a similar, similar pattern. Um, firstly, a Persian king is, is moved by God. God stirs in him to send a leader back to Jerusalem. Um, then that leader comes. He begins the work, but then he faces opposition um, and then each of these stories ends with a kind of a strange anticlimax. Um, the first story is in, we'll cover is, is chapter one to six. Um, that's where, as, um, sorry, there's a few different characters, but the first character that we'll look at is, is mainly Zerubbabel. Um, so Zerubbabel is this leader who has this task to come and rebuild the temple. Um, after that, there's a period of about 60 years that a lot of scholars actually say that's where you should insert uh, Esther and that story. Um, you can go back and listen to Esther. We did that a couple of years ago. Um, and then in Ezra 7 to 10, we get this story of this second wave of returnees, which is led by Ezra, who is this scribe and he's this teacher. And his task, now that the temple is built and the temple is up and running, is to come and, and reinstate the law. He's come, coming to teach the Torah, which is all about a community. This is how to be the people of God. Uh, what makes the people faithful to God's covenant is when they live according to his ways. So this is incredibly important. They're called to live and walk in line with God's ways. And then the third story is, is Nehemiah, um, this third return, which centers on Nehemiah, who is the governor of Judah under the, the king Artaxerxes. Um, and his task is to come and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. Um, and then it ends with a couple sections, uh, this kind of section of, of spiritual renewal. Things are going really great. And then it ends with uh, this kind of grand anticlimax. You looking forward to that? Great. Um, so those are those three returns, these three stories that will follow. Zerubbabel, rebuilding the temple. Ezra, rebuilding the community by teaching the Torah. Uh, and then Nehemiah, rebuilding the city walls. Um, it's an incredibly exciting time for the Jews. Like, can you imagine how exciting it would have been for these exiles? They're scattered from their home. They've been living in exile, living in a foreign land. Their relationship with God is, is nearly snuffed out completely. Um, their, their identity has nearly been erased. Can you, can you imagine how exciting it must have been to hear that, that proclamation of Cyrus? 
And you can go home now. You can rebuild, you can restore, not just your city, but your relationship with God. Like, how amazing, how exciting they must have been. But what are they excited about? Their, their, their hopes were coming true. They, they, these things that they were clinging to were finally beginning to come true. But what were they anticipating? What were their hopes? Were they excited about getting back to their old neighborhood? They're excited about reuniting with some old friends, that old cuisine that you haven't had in years. Probably. Um, but that's not what they were most excited about. That's not what their hopes were, were hanging on. Their hope is in the covenant promises of God being fulfilled. His covenant promises coming true. Remember, God had been speaking to them through prophets. So you have Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Zechariah. It's all during this time. These prophets have been speaking to them on behalf of God. Um, and these, these men of God, remember they prophesied. Uh, they told the people of Israel before they had been taken into exile that they were going to be taken into exile. And then what happened? They were taken into exile exactly like they said. So they know what they're talking about. They're, they're worth listening to. And they said, even though, they, they, here's some bad news, but then they also had words of hope. And they said, even though God is punishing you because of your unfaithfulness, don't lose hope. And why? Because he is faithful. And he's not, he's going to uphold his promises, his covenant to you, even though you've been unfaithful, even though you've been in exile. And so it's these words of hope from these prophets that were uh, prophesied to the Jews, this is what they were ho holding on to. This is what they were clinging to. And so let me just give you a few of them. What are these prophetic hopes that they were waiting for to come true after the exile? The first one was this hope of this future messianic king. And one of the instances is the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 11, again, he said, things are going to go bad for you guys. Yes, but wait because God is going to gather the exiles of Israel. He's going to uh, uh, bring together the dispersed of Judah again. And one will rise up from the tribe of Judah who will bring judgment and righteousness and redemption. So they're clinging on to this hope of this future messianic king who will come and redeem his people. Another prophetic hope that they're waiting on was God's presence in this new temple and Zechariah 2, again, is this prophecy that talks about the scattering of God's people, but he encourages them to wait and have hope because God promised once again, he says, I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And he says this will happen in, Ju in Judah, in Jerusalem. Amazing, waiting for that to happen. Another one they were clinging to was God establishing his kingdom over all the nations, Waiting for that, we're just in exile, we're under the nations, we're being persecuted, we're waiting for God to flip that upside down, right? Zechariah chapter 8 is this beautiful prophecy that talks about the restoration of Jerusalem and Judah, the peace and the prosperity that they would be experiencing. And it ends by saying, hey, people will come, on inhabitants of many cities, from every nation of every tongue, taking hold of the robe of the Jews, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What a special scene. Like, what, what, what hope they're waiting on. 
They're in persecution. They're in exile. And God's like, everyone else someday is going to be clinging to your robe as you go home and say, don't go without us. Let us come with you because we heard that God is with you. And ultimately, they're clinging on to the hope of God fulfilling his covenant promise to Abram back in Genesis 12, where he said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. So these are these prophetic promises, these, these covenant hopes that these exiles are clinging to and waiting for. And so how exciting must it have been to hear that decree, the exile is over, and is God finally bringing these things to pass? The excitement that this story begins with, but then the anticlimactic, disappointing ending. What hope? Oh, maybe not. Anyone just love an anticlimactic ending? <laughs> You don't, well, I don't know, who is that turned around? I don't know who that was. The story doesn't wrap up without it. Um, me too. So, so why go through this whole series for just a disappointing, anticlimactic ending? Well, because this is a story of people clinging on to hope in the now and not yet. And we are a people clinging on to hope in the now and not yet. Derek Hidner, he points out that there's a certain kinship between this last stretch of narrative in the Old Testament and the last stretch of narrative in the, in the New Testament, and, and that both bring the reader to this point of arrival at a staging post rather than a final destination. Isn't that true? And that's, that's the, the, do you ever feel that way in your life? That's the story of the church, isn't it? We, we, we live in this glorious reality but we're waiting for something better to come. We're waiting for more. We're waiting, and it's a struggle in the waiting. We are at a staging post, not the final destination. So there are these deep parallels between Israel's story and ours. There's so much to learn. Don't forget, though, who the story is ultimately about. It's not about the characters of this story. It's not about... Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. It's not about the Jews. It's not about you and me. It's about God and his faithfulness to his people, and it's pointing us to Jesus. It's a story that helps us see Jesus. It helps prepare us for Jesus. And so you might be thinking, uh, how's it do that exactly? Like, I don't see it yet. There's these building projects. There's this law. There's this temple. There's these walls. How is that pointing to Jesus? And hopefully we'll see in many ways. Um, but here's the overall way, I think. In this exciting start of this story, and then in the disappointing ending, it reveals to us the, the importance of having a new heart. And, and, and all of this covenant hope kind of coming true, the, the building of the temple, the sacrifices, the law-keeping, the walls, they're doing all of these things right, but they're waiting for the Lord to show up. They're waiting for revival. They're waiting for the Spirit of God because they're learning that all of this work isn't leading anywhere fruitful without Him. Like they're missing something. It's, it's, it's a lot of work, but it seems impossible. All of this good work, yet it ends with disobedience. 
It ends with disappointment. They're missing something. And God would say, exactly right. You're missing something. And that's exactly what he, what he tells us in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Ezra and Nehemiah is pointing out this need for a new heart. Let me read you those two sections. Ezra the, uh, Ezekiel 36 Again, talks about the restoration of Israel. He says, you are suffering the reproach of the nations, uh, but he promises to restore them again. God's going to bring them back to the land. He's going to multiply them again. And then verse 24, he says this. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Great, he's starting to do that. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So, so there, God says, your problem is that you have a heart of stone. That's the issue. That's why you're following after me. never seems to be fruitful. It never seems to work out. What you need is a new heart, a heart of flesh, and you need me to give you that new heart. And he says the same thing in Jeremiah 31. There, he actually talks about this as being a new covenant, which have been exciting for them. So again, that, that, that chapter, it talks about the suffering and exiles, but the God's going to gather them again. All the prophets have that same kind of um, theme. And then in verse 31, he says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He doesn't leave anyone out. Even though they're separated, he's going to do this for all of them. Not like the covenant that I made for their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is such adultery. It's terrible. terrible. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the story of Ezra and Nehemiah shows this deep need of God giving his people a new heart, this new covenant where he will actually write it on, on our hearts he will forgive our sins forever. It points out that need, right? But it ends not with him doing that. And then thus ends the Old Testament. It ends with unfinished hope. And then there's this period of waiting, waiting on God to fulfill this new covenant, waiting on this Messiah who would come and do this work and to establish the new, final, better, perfect covenant. And so do you see the story is pointing us to Jesus. It's preparing us for Jesus. And we're nearly finished. But do you see how for us on this side of that new covenant, and for for us, 
who are in Christ, who through, through his life, his death, and resurrection, he has given us new hearts. He has given us forgiveness of sins. I want you to see, on one hand, everything has changed, right? We have what they lacked. We, we, we have it fulfilled completely. But in many ways, compared to Israel, much is the same. I want you to see the parallels. Like God still desires a relationship with us, and he does so through covenant. God is still sovereign. He's continuing to guide all of history providentially. He's in control. He's still, you think he's still not stirring in people's hearts? Of course he is. And we should have great joy and peace and contentment. We don't understand it all. We, we, don't, we don't understand all that's happening, but we're called to trust him, that he's faithful, that he's good to his people. And we need to see that, that he still asks us to live in a certain way. He still asks us to, to live in a way that respects him and values others. So holiness is a major theme of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's the same for us today. He still calls us to live holy, set-apart lives, to walk as children of light in the darkness. And for them and for us, our actions continue to have real effect in our lives and the lives of our children. And lastly, what was true for them continues to be true for us, that God's grace is real, that his grace is bigger than our disobedience, is more powerful than our rebellion. His grace, his love is steadfast even when we turn from him. Just as he restored Israel to that land, he is restoring all of creation to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. So don't look back on this story as we make our way through it and think, well, because of Jesus, it's all different for us. No, no, no. Because of Jesus, it's all fulfilled. But so much is the same for us as for them. We're waiting. We're clinging on to hope. We're clinging on to his promises. We are in the now and not yet. We are in a staging post, not the final destination. We don't experience the same bitter disappointment as they did, thankfully, because of Jesus. We have what they lacked. We have the new, the new, the new heart of flesh in Jesus. We have his law written on our hearts with the Spirit. We have forgiveness of sins fully and completely because of his sacrifice. Like, what amazing news. But we still relate to that now and not yet reality, don't we? Still waiting, still clinging on to hope. And just as we end here, uh, the Apostle Peter, he makes this connection. Um, he sees this parallel when he's writing to this group of churches in the New Testament. He's writing to Christians. And, and one Peter, how does, how does he open that? What does he call the people that he's writing to? Exiles. He says, you are elect exiles, which is an incredible phrase. He says, you are God's children. You are his beloved in the new covenant, but you're still exiles. You're still living in a foreign land. You're still waiting on Christ's return. And, and maybe we'll do, read 1 Peter after we do the study through Ezra and Nehemiah, and you'll see all these amazing parallels. He says, you're elect exiles. You're chosen, but you're living in a foreign land. You have that experience. He also calls us to holiness to live purified, soul, uh, purified lives, purified souls, obedience, called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. He says there's a temple being built, but it's God building the temple, and you are actually the stones that he's using to build that. Isn't that amazing? Like God is going to, his presence will be in this new temple, but it's you, his people, 
together, his presence being dwelt, uh, being, uh, is his, you are his dwelling place. Um, isn't that incredible? And we have so much to learn from Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, so many applications, so much beauty to see in Jesus. Hope you're excited. I really am. Do you stand with me and we'll pray? Uh, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Um, lost without it. Um, we just thank you for revealing yourself to us in, in, a, in so many ways, in, in nature and with relationships and, and, and in every way, learning you, but most importantly, um, through your word. Um, we ask you, Lord, that you would help us and as we start this journey of, of making our way through these books. Um, would, you, would your spirit do the work um, much like these people living in this, this period, we need you, Lord. We need your spirit um, to lead us, to fill us, to teach us, open our eyes. Would you do that, Lord? Um, thank you, Jesus, the one that this book is all about. Um, our, 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 our fulfilled hope is in you. Lord, fill our hearts up in that way every Sunday, every day, Lord. We're in the here and not yet. We're in the staging period, but we have such great hope, such confidence in the struggle because of you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling all those promises perfectly. Thank you, Jesus, for upholding both sides of the covenant for us. Such grace, such freedom. And may we know that, Lord. Would you fill our hearts with that? Lord, I just pray for the people here, um, especially, Lord, those who really feel that, that exile nature in their lives. Lord, those who, who feel hopeless. Lord, those who feel unaccepted. And those who feel um, unknown, feel like foreigners. A lot of question marks. Uh, Lord, this is who you're for. Uh, would you bring them in, Lord? Would you fill their hearts up? Would you heal that pain? Heal that every disease, Lord? We thank you, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.